We're going to have a scripture reading now. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth. The Old Testament book of Ruth. And I'm going to be reading from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And you'll find Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 in your navy blue church Bibles in the pouch in front of you. And you'll find that on page 187. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call as your own and you'd like to take uh, one of those uh, Bibles with you as our gift, that would just be wonderful. We would love it if you could do that. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, page 187 in your church Bibles. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Ephrathite, that's a designation to, their, the, to the tribe or the clan, rather, that they were in, the family clan. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. This is God's word. Well, I just thought it would be appropriate uh, on Mother's Day to begin a series of messages uh, in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is about the life of uh, one of the most storied heroines in the Bible, her name, of course, is, is Ruth. And what's significant about Ruth's life is that she was the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, King David. Something else that's significant about Ruth is that she was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. She was an immigrant an outsider. And so the question is, how does an outsider, how does an immigrant, how does a foreigner become the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king? Well, that's the story of the book of Ruth. And uh, we're going to just walk through her story and her life here this morning, and then we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks just delving into the details of each chapter. Now, the book of Ruth occurs in four places, uh, four scenes or four acts, if you will. Uh, so we're going to look at the Ruth's life uh, in the country of Moab. Then we're going to traverse to the fields of Bethlehem. And then after that, we're going to spend some time uh, on the threshing floor. What's a threshing floor? 
I grew up in the city. What's that? We're going to find out what that is. And then uh, we're going to go to the city gates. And so those are the four places that occur in the book of Ruth, one chapter for each place, four different places, but there's one theme, one overriding dominant theme that encompasses the book of Ruth and the life of Ruth and the lesson that God wants us to get for today. And that theme can be summarized in one Hebrew word. And it's a word that I want to teach you this morning. It is the word chesed. Chesed. Now, um, I want you to say that. All right, on three. One, two, three. Chesed. Now, we didn't say that correctly. All right? Because uh, we said chesed. And, and actually, we've got we've to be good Hebrews here. And so what that means is we've got to We've got a, it's a, it's a, it's a throaty chesed. It sounds like this, chesed, all right? You may have to cover your mouth, and that's okay if you do that, but uh, that's how to pronounce it. It's chesed, all right? It's, I'm not sick. I'm fine. I'm just a 21st century Westerner, all right? And that's going to be the hardest thing to try to understand this wonderful life. So let's practice. One, two, three. Chesed. Again, one, two, three. Chesed. Last time, one, two, three. Chesed. Good, you've got it. What, does, what is chesed? What does that mean? Well, it means it's hard. Talk about lost in translation. It's very difficult to pinpoint just one English word that would correspond with chesed. So I'm going to use two. And it's the words, put them together, loving kindness. Loving kindness. There it is. And even that's inadequate. But as we look through each of these places in the book of Ruth, I want us to see how God's chesed, how God's loving kindness appears and it radically transforms the lives of those in Ruth's life and it even touches on our life today. So let's begin this amazing story over this amazing woman, Ruth. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1 begins, In the days when the judges ruled. Now what's that? That was the period of time between the conquest of the land, the promised land, and the monarchy. It was about a 180 year period of time. After Joshua conquered the land, when God's people entered the land after 40 years in the wilderness, after Joshua had, had conquered the land, then uh, there was this tumultuous time in Israel's history, a period of about 180 years, when Israel was ruled not by political leaders, but military leaders. And it was kind of the Wild West days of Israel's era. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you just glance up to the very last verse of the book of Judges in Judges 21-25, and Judges concludes with, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That is a stormy period. That's not a compliment at all. What would happen is, God's people would chase after false gods. God would allow 
Israel's enemies to persecute Israel, Israel would suffer, Israel would repent and cry out, God would hear the cry, send a judge, a leader. And we most notably uh, remember Samson as one of those judges. And Samson and other judges would rescue God's people, and then there would be a period of peace and prosperity, and then Israel would go other, after other foreign gods, and the cycle would continue. And this went on for 180 years, and so it was during one of those cycles where uh, Ruth 1.1 says there was a famine in the land. So you see, there's not only a famine, there's not only a physical famine that's going on, but we're in an era where there's a spiritual famine that's occurring, and when famines happen, they happen to both righteous and unrighteous people. Jesus said that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so we have a particular family here who's having to pay the price of a famine in the land. And this man's name was Elimelech. And, and, and it got so bad that he had to take his family and leave the land of promise. Now, Elimelech has been sympathized with and he's been vilified by scholars for his decision. But the bottom line was his family was hungry. It's ironic that his hometown was Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. So Elimelech had to leave the house of bread in order to go find bread, and he went to Moab. (laughs) Why Moab? Moab was a traditional enemy of Israel. And probably the reason why, if you haven't seen where Moab is already, it was just, it was close. It was the closest place where food could be found. So Elimelech yanks his family out of the house of bread to go find bread. And it's ironic that Elimelech's name means, my God is king. Well, if his God is king, why did they have to leave the kingdom? You see, all of those questions are rolling around in the reader's mind as they consider these verses and they settle to Moab. And then the unthinkable happens. Do you see that in verse 3? Elimelech dies. That's it. We don't know why or how, but Naomi, his wife, is now left with two boys, and she lived in a patriarchal culture. She lived in an era where, you know, it wasn't, didn't have the kind of social safety net that that we have today. She's got these two sons, Killian and Malan, and, and, okay, well, maybe they'll be able to marry and have children, and then those children will, will, will grow up, and then you know, Naomi will be able to be supported, because family was everything back then. But they didn't go back to Israel to find the wives. They married Moabite women. Oh, why did you have to marry Moabite women? And it wasn't an interracial issue at all. It was an interreligious issue, because the Moabites worshipped the false god, Chemosh, and... Well, that's, there it is. They marry. And in verse 4, after we find out that they married these Moabite women, it would just be natural. We would just expect the very next verse to read, and they had children. But that's not what it says, is it? It says they stayed there for 10 years. 10 years. And every year that passed, every year that passed... 
No children. No children. There's loss that's going on here. And then, and then what's worse? Look at verse 5. Both Malan and Killian die. We don't know how. We don't know where. And now Naomi is really in trouble, you see. Specifically, she has no sons. She has lost her identity in this patriarchal culture. She was a wife who was unwifed. She is a mother who was unmothered. She's lost everything. You say, where's the chesed in all this? Well, verse 6 gives us a glimpse. Naomi hears in Moab that food has come to Bethlehem and Judah. And so she sets out. She sets out. And there she is at the entrance ramp of I-72, ready to go back to Judah. And the daughters-in-law are with her. She turns and she says, you can't come with me. There's nothing for you. If, if, if you come with me, you'll be the immigrant. You'll be the outsider. You'll be the foreigner. There, and, and who? what would be the point anyway? What, what are you, you going to do? I mean, the best case scenario would be if I were to remarry and then uh, have boys, and then what are you going to wait 20 years? Until, but I can't remarry because I'm not able to have children. I mean, we're, I'm done here. You've got to go back. Am I? Is the Lord saying something? Cut this thing out of here. Should I use another mic? What do you want me to do? Al, we okay? Oh, we'll play this out for a little while. All right. Where was I? I'm on the interstate. Okay, there it goes again. Wow. Let me just use a handheld. I'll be like, uh, I'll be like an evangelist. Can we do this? Oh, this will be okay. This is good. This is all right. I'll just, uh, we'll figure it out. It's a very emotional scene in chapter 1 because this mother-in-law is shooing her two daughters-in-law away. They've got a positive relationship by now. And the daughter-in-laws, they want to go back with her because they love her. And she's saying, there's absolutely no future for you. There's no sense at all for you to come. I don't want you to go. I mean, there's no... And she keeps saying, return home, my daughters. Return home and, and, and... uh, that's the dominant verb in chapter 1. Return home. Return home. I mean, would you remain unmarried? Uh, no, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. There's weeping and crying that's going on. Orpah and Ruth want to go. And, 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 you know, if you were Orpah's family and you lived in Moab, you know what the answer would be. You would want both Orpah and Ruth to stay there and to go back to your family to go back to the people who know you and to start a new family. I mean, it made sense. And so Orpah did the math. She realized. Verse 14 says she kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. You know, knowing that it was a goodbye kiss when she would never, ever see her again. And Orpah goes back to Moab. Orpah goes back 
But Ruth stayed. Ruth stayed. It says not, not only that Ruth stayed, but she clung to her. And it's here that we begin to see what chesed looks like. What is chesed, right? You keep talking about that. Here is chesed. Chesed is undeserved, unearned, loving kindness shown to someone in their desperate need. Chesed. Uh, Naomi is saying to these two girls, I, oh, you go back, don't worry about me. It's better that one person uh, uh, die in permanent widowhood than three of us, especially in a patriarchal culture where family is everything. There's no need for the three of us. Well, you can't expect anything else but permanent widowhood in, in Judah. You've got to go back. And so Orpah does. But, but Ruth is just... She's just broken by Naomi's selflessness on her behalf and how much she wants for her. And that changes her. And she chooses to stay and to cling to her. And what you need to understand, it's not simply out of mother-in-law devotion. She not only wants Naomi, more importantly, she wants Naomi's God. And that's why she says in verse 16... Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. You know what that is? That's a profession of faith. That's a conversion that takes place. Right there, Ruth converts, leaving Chemosh and embracing Yahweh, the true God of the universe. And we often have heard verse 16 in wedding ceremonies between grooms and brides, and it's nice, sweet words there. But I want you to know those verses don't come from a wedding that takes place in the Bible. It takes place between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. Ruth is so changed by Naomi's selflessness. Naomi cries out. Naomi cries out, the Lord's hand is against me. And Ruth says, I want that God. I want that God. See, Ruth converts knowing what it will cost her. And and here's the significance of this, church family. Why do people immigrate to the United States? Why do they come? Perhaps the The foremost reason is that they believe that life will be better for them here, right? But here we have someone who immigrates with the understanding that her life will be worse. You see, she'll be an outsider. And verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And literally, that means she just stopped talking. Naomi was kind of peeved. That she went with her. She just kind of, just, ah. all right. But there's hope at the end of chapter one there. In the midst of this place of unforeseen loss, look at verse 22. They arrive in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. There's hope on the horizon. Food has come to Judah. And so we move from the country of Moab to the fields of Bethlehem. And that's why chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, begin with a conversation that Ruth had with Naomi. Ruth says to Naomi, well, it's the barley harvest. I'm going to go out and glean some food from the fields. Now, what's that all about? Well, 
in the Old Testament, there was a welfare provision. The farmers in Israel were not allowed to harvest every row from their crops. They had to leave the uh, ends of the properties and the corners so that the poor could glean from the fields the leftovers. And we read this in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. That's where that comes from. So Ruth, knowing about this, says to Naomi, I'm going to go out into the fields and glean. Well, I love verse 3. Verse 3 in chapter 2 says, As it turned out, as it turned out, coincidentally, wink, wink, Ruth found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. Who's Boaz? Boaz was a relative of Elimelech. I mean, she could have picked any field, but she just happens to wander out to Boaz's field. And they have a conversation. And Boaz arrives, and he's looking over the harvest, and greets the harvesters, and has a conversation with his foreman. How's it going, chief? Oh, boss, we're going to have a great harvest this year. And Boaz is looking at all of the harvesters and the, and the, the gleaners. And, 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 and Boaz says, well, who is that young woman there? Well, it was Ruth. How would he notice her? She's different. That's how. She's an outsider. She walks differently. She's from a different race. She has a different dialect. I mean, she stands out. Well, that's Ruth. That's Naomi's daughter-in-law. Remember Elimelech who died? They've come back. And Ruth came back with her. Oh, my goodness. And Boaz engages in a conversation with her. Because, you see, the foreman complimented Ruth. The foreman says, she's been working all day. She's tough. And she's kind of bold, too. Boaz says, well, how do you mean? He says, well, you know, she came up and she actually asked if she could follow the harvesters while they were harvesting. The protocol was for the harvesters to do their work, to leave the field, and then the poor would come and glean after them, you see. And, but Ruth just came up to me and said, hey, can I just follow the harvesters? I don't, I'm trying to take care of my mother-in-law, you know. And so, ooh, Boaz says, that's bold. She's bold like that talks to her. Verse 8 says, he tells her, I want you to stay in my field. I don't want you to go to another field, you see. And I've ordered my workers not to harm you. You see, she was vulnerable. She was an outsider. She could be taken advantage of. And then Boaz says, and furthermore, when you get thirsty, I've got water there. You just And she's just blown away by this generosity. How could you be so generous to me? And Boaz says, I know who you are. And I know what you've done. You've taken care of your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Verse 11. And then Boaz offers this blessing. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And here we see yet another characteristic of this word chesed. Chesed. You see what's going on here? Chesed is when someone 
who has power and resources takes initiative to meet the needs of someone else who is in desperate need. Chesed is what happens when someone cares about you and freely makes it their business to look after you. Chesed does not call for a committee to discuss the issue. Chesed takes action. It's about deliverance from someone in dire straits. Chesed says, though I may have the option not to get involved, I have the responsibility to, and I'm going to take up that responsibility. Furthermore, chesed does not merely permit generosity. Chesed promotes generosity. And that's what we see in chapter 2, where Boaz not only talks to Ruth, but encourages Ruth to drink water. In fact, says, why don't you just sit down, let's have a meal together with all the workers. And, and just there's incredible generosity that's displayed. And then Boaz orders the workers to act generously toward her. He pulls the workers aside and says, now listen, don't embarrass her. Help her out. Give her what she needs for the sake of Naomi. And, and, and just let her have what, what she needs to have. Let's be good to her. And she comes home that night with 15 times as much food as what someone would normally have. And Naomi says, well, who is it that you married today? And uh, that's verse 19. Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth said, well, I, I happened on this field and I met this very warm, hospitable person, this kind person. His name is Boaz. Do you know him? Do I know him? Boaz, he's a kinsman redeemer. Well, he said that he didn't want me to go to any other field. He wants me to stay there. And, and, and Naomi says, well, you better not, dear. You can just see the wheels churning in Naomi's mind. And now you've got to fast forward six weeks. Because now we've left the fields of Bethlehem for the threshing floor. Now, what's a threshing floor? Well, back then, they didn't have all the fancy, schmancy combines that we have today out in the fields. You gathered the crops there, the sheaths, and you brought them to the threshing floor, and you used oxen to kind of beat the chaff, and the grain fell, and then you winnowed it, and what that worker is doing is, 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 is throwing the, the grain and the chaff up in the air and the wind blows the chaff away and the grain falls on the threshing floor. And that's, that was kind of a, a community activity in that day. But at night, the threshing floor, you know, the owner had to stay and guard the grain. And so Naomi, knowing that Boaz will be at the threshing floor, concocts a plan. And the plan is this. Ruth goes in the middle of the night, finds out where Boaz is. After Boaz has had a full meal, he's drowsy, he's in deep REM. Ruth comes in the middle of the night and uncovers his feet us Westerners go, what is that? Just hang on. Bo 
Boaz gets cold feet. You know how you wake up in the night? Your feet are cold. You should have worn those little stockings. Well, Boaz forgot his. The covers got kicked off. Looks down. Chapter 3, he sees this woman lying at his feet. <gasps> Who are you? Chapter 3, verse 9 says, I'm your servant, Ruth. She wants to have a private conversation with him. That's why it's at night. And then Ruth says in verse 9, this very, very odd thing for us Westerners to hear. Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me. Huh? Huh? What's that? That is a proposal for marriage. She is asking Boaz for his hand in marriage. And then she says this, since you are a kinsman redeemer. What? Well, I have to explain this to you or you're, we're going to, something's really going to get lost in translation. See, back then as a part of the safety net, if my brother became impoverished so that he had to sell his house, I, as his closest relative, could buy back that house, and by law, it would, I, I could buy it back so that my brother's property would not be lost to the family because family meant everything, see. Furthermore, if my, brother's, if my brother died and his wife did not have a, a, a if they didn't have a son then I was, to, uh, I was to marry his widow and produce a son. It's called the leveret duty, so that the family name would not fall into extinction. Write down Leviticus 25.25. Leviticus 25.25 says, If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. There it is, the property. And now write down Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So there it is, both in property and in future generations, is the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. You see what's going on here with Ruth? Ruth isn't a gold digger. She is calling This man of standing, chapter 2, verse 1, calls Boaz a man of standing, a man of valor. And she's encouraging him, challenging him, calling him to be the man of valor he is. She's challenging a very good man to become a great man. She's calling him to leave his comfortable life and to use his resources to make a difference because that's what chesed does. And that's why I told you that it's like a velvet-covered brick. It sees someone in need and takes action, but then it challenges those who can take action to do so. Ruth. Ruth, this strong woman, interacts with this godly man 
who becomes even godlier because he, uh, she is in his life. And this is going to cost Boaz because probably he has other sons. You wouldn't become a man of standing without such sons. And that means their inheritance is going to be diluted. But Ruth calls him to be the man of valor that he is. And she comes into his life and he gets better. And she presses him and challenges him toward responsibility. And he responds. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Now circle that phrase, noble character, and then glance at chapter 2, verse 1, at the word of standing. It's the same word in the Hebrew. Talk about spiritual synchronization. Talk about two people being on the same page. Ruth's boldness jars Boaz out of his respectable comfort zone and leads him to a more radical, self-sacrificing life of faith. That's what Chesed does. He says, I will do what you've asked. But then he he throws this curveball. He says, you want a kinsman redeemer. He says, but Ruth, the problem is you've come to the wrong man. There is someone closer to Elimelech than me. And so we go to the city gates where a decision will be made. And in chapter 4, we meet this person who has no name. We don't know who the closer kinsman redeemer was. Um, For our purposes here, we will call him Goober. And through some amazing negotiations, amazing negotiations, why Boaz, as you see, he gets Ruth. And they marry. And they have a son. And the son's name is Obed. And Obed had a son whose name was Jesse. And Jesse grew up, and he had a son, and his name is David, Israel's greatest king. Oh, my goodness. You see, chesed didn't just affect their family. The ripples of it went on to the nation. And then, of course, you see, <laughs> David had, a, had an heir, too. And his name is Jesus, the king of kings. Wow. See, that's chesed. That's Hesed. Hesed, you know, Hesed ultimately tells us about God's great love. This book of Ruth is not really about Ruth. It's really about Jesus because Ruth appears in Christ's genealogy. And Ruth says, you know, if I keep my life, Naomi will lose hers. So I will take on her poverty. I'll be marginalized with her. I'll become poor so that through my poverty she might become rich. And so Ruth left her country and she suffered and was rejected and was despised. Does that remind you of anyone? Yeah, I mean, do you think, you think Ruth went with Naomi because she thought, you know, oh, I've always wanted to be a loving, non-prejudiced person. No, that's not why. She saw Hasid from Naomi. 
that attractive, loving kindness, Naomi's willingness to throw her life away for Ruth's sake, and it broke Ruth. It changed her life. And if seeing Naomi's chesed made Ruth a truer Ruth, then how much truer will you or I become as we behold chesed from Jesus Christ, who left the riches of glory and became impoverished for you and for me. I tell you, when chesed gets into your soul, it becomes a lens through which you see life, and you will be able to see even modern-day Ruth's in action. Jason? As we were talking about this series from Ruth, in this opening week, I said, I said, this just reminds me so much of a story, of a true story that I heard several years ago. And I said, I've just, I, I've just got to, uh, to call this woman and see if I can interview her and tell her story uh, here during our service. So uh, a week and a half ago, I called a woman named Sigalinda Johnson. And, uh, and Sigalinda is a German woman. Uh, who grew up in the southern part of Germany during World War II. She grew up in the city of Ulm, uh, down in the very southern part of Germany. And Ulm is this beautiful city. Uh, it, it is actually, um, it, uh, it, it, uh, it's the birthplace of uh, Albert Einstein. And, uh, and Ulm boasts, it has the, the tallest uh, church tower, church steeple in the world. So it's this kind of incredible place. Well, well Sig was uh, the oldest of, of seven children, but only three of them survived to adulthood. So it was Sig, and then it was her two brothers. Then they had a brother who died at nine months old of pneumonia. They had twin sisters who were stillborn. And then one of the most tragic things, uh, they had a, the youngest little sister who lived to be almost three and then passed away of, of diphtheria uh, in a hospital with, with no heat, with no doctors, with no medicine. I think sometimes when we think of, of Germany and World War II, we focus so much energy on Hitler and what was going on. We forget it was a pretty crummy place to live for the average German as well. Uh, Sig told stories when I interviewed her of, of them um, just being camped out in their cellar and living on nothing but potatoes for days and weeks, and, and just time and time on end. Sometimes she and her surviving brothers would take a little wagon, and they would go walk by the side of the road and pick up crab apples that were laying on the ground, and that was kind of a treat for them. Because, see, in Ulm, the Americans were bombing by day, and the British were bombing by night. And, and Ulm is a place that kind of has a crisscross of railroad tracks, which made it a great supply line uh, for the German army, but it also made it a target for the Allies. Well, Sig's father, Eugen, uh, was a German soldier. Actually, he was a Nazi, uh, but like for many Nazis of the day, being a part of that political party was more about national pride, and he had no idea what was happening, uh, you know, across his country in concentration camps. Well, when Eugen went off to war, Sig tells this story uh, of him actually being about 10 kilometers away from Moscow as they were marching out. And the Russians found the bunker that he and, and some of his fellow troops were in, and they just shot into the bunker with a machine gun. They dropped a grenade down, trapped one everywhere, and actually caught Yugen in the neck, uh, just missing his vocal cords by just millimeters. So he ends up later in an American POW camp, 
And, uh, and one of the coolest stories she told is of her mother and one of her brothers getting on bicycles and traveling around trying to find their father. They eventually uh, bring him home. Uh, Sig grows up and uh, studies in high school and studies in college and does extremely well in her English studies. So she begins working at a department store, and, and because of her ability in English, she oversees all the clerks and does a lot of translating. Well, one day, uh, in walks this tall, handsome American soldier into the store, and she begins translating for him, and they start up a relationship. They date for a year, and then they marry, and eventually they move to the United States, where unfortunately, throughout the course of their marriage, he becomes a very abusive alcoholic. So picture this, okay? Here's this woman named Sig, who, who has lived through war-torn Germany during World War II, comes over to America, the land of opportunity, and barely survives an abusive relation, an abusive marriage to this man. Well, that marriage uh, gave her and Vern three sons. Uh, the oldest one is Vern III, the middle one is Chuck, and the youngest one is Paul. Uh, Vern and Paul, the oldest and youngest, uh, went to study at Lincoln Christian University, and, uh, and unfortunately, the middle son, Chuck, uh, followed in his father's footsteps into a life of alcohol and, and drug issues and things like that. N- now, you might kind of ask, well, where's the connection here between these stories? Well, I think there's a ton of similarities, okay? You've got Ruth, and you've got this woman named Sig, both of whom grew up in significant adversity, both had trials that they faced, both pushed their faith to the limit. And both, I'm sure, wondered at times, what is ever going to come of my story? How is God possibly going to redeem the things that I am going through in life? Well, as Randy said, Ruth's story, which I think are the most powerful verses in the book of Ruth, you know, she and Boaz have a son named Obed. And then he has a son named Jesse, and she probably lived long enough to see her grandson. Maybe she lived long enough to see some of Jesse's children, but I'm guessing that Ruth didn't live long enough to see her great-grandson become the king of Israel. And certainly she had no idea that 28 generations after him, that Jesus, the Savior of the world, would come through her line. Well, back to Sig. I mentioned that she and Vern had three children. Um, Vern III uh, died uh, at age 55, unfortunately, uh, of morbid obesity and some health issues and things like that. But he had three daughters uh, who have gone on to college and are pursuing God with their lives. Uh, Paul, the youngest, uh, didn't have any kids, but pursued a life of music and ministry, has been involved in the church. Uh, Chuck, the middle son, um, who, who moved into a life of drugs and alcohol, unfortunately, those life choices ended up taking his life at age 50. And along the way, he had a son that, very sadly, he abandoned in the process. But that son grew up to become a strikingly handsome family minister in Champaign, Illinois. Here's the thing. You never know. You never know how God could use your life. I don't know what desert you're going through. I don't know what storms you are facing right now. But you have no idea that the years you spend hiding out in a cellar with bombs falling day and night, living on nothing but potatoes, and you say, why, God, how could you ever do anything with my life? That your faithfulness might make a difference. 
for generations and generations to come. See, in Ruth's story, Ruth wasn't faithful because God promised that King David would come through her line or King Jesus would come through later. God brought those through her line because she was faithful. And as we head into a time of communion this morning, I want you just to reflect on this one thought. God, in the midst of everything that I am dealing with right now, in the midst of everything I'm facing and all the difficulties that are going on in my life, how are you calling me to be faithful even when I don't see the whole picture? Would you pray for me?